This is Audio QT, the podcast of QT Voices, the online magazine of the LGBTQ Studies Program at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you all for listening. I'm Karma Chavez. I'm your host of Audio QT today. And this fall, under the leadership of Grayson Hunt, the Associate Director of LGBTQ Studies, UT hosted the Thinking Trans, Trans Thinking, a conference of the Trans Philosophy Project. And the keynote speaker for this event was Dr. Cameron Awkward Rich, an award-winning poet, a careful thinker, and a black trans man. Cameron is the author of Sympathetic Little Monster, which came out in 2016 and was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. He's also the author of Dispatch, uh, which Persia Books published last year. He's a Cave Canham Fellow and a poetry editor for Muzzle Magazine. Cameron earned his PhD from Stanford University's program in modern thought and literature, and he's an assistant professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I could say a lot more, but I'll leave it there and say, Cameron, welcome to Audio QT. Hi, thanks for having me. So this year has been a lot, and yes. your work is, <laughs> to say the least, uh, and your work is really about, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to minimize, uh, but one of the big themes of your work as I read it is really about feeling and sentiment. And so I'm wondering, what has 2020 felt like to you? Yeah, um, it is true that a big theme of my work is feeling and sentiment. Um, but unfortunately, I think that um, as with uh, many academics, um, the reason that I think so much about feeling is because I find it to be a slightly bewildering thing, the question of what I feel and what um, what that might have to say about the world or my world. But um, I think that like most people, uh, the feeling of 2020 has been for me a feeling of both um, profound clarity, right? I think that it is a year in which um, it all, all of the all of all of the ways that we know um, that the world is structured unequally, all of the ways that we know that um, the structure of the world exposes people to premature death, all of the ways that we know. Um, yeah, all the ways that we know about the brutality of the world, it seemed patently obvious um, this year in a way that it sometimes um, feels buried. Um, but it was also a year um, of sort of great confusion. Um, it was a year where I did a lot of reevaluating of what my work ought be, what my responsibility to the world ought be. Um, yeah, I don't know. But also I've had the fortunate experience of being uh, on leave. Uh, this oh. last semester. So it has also been, um, yeah, I've also not exactly been in the muck of it as many people have been. Yeah, the leave, this is a weird year. I mean, not to do too much academic talk, but it is a weird year to have a leave because uh, on the one hand, what a gift not to have been in the classroom. And then on the other hand, uh, there were no archives open. You couldn't do yeah. nearly as much traveling. Um, it's true. Um, I had to reimagine what it might mean to finish my book um, in ways that I was not exactly expecting. Yeah. And so um, I think uh, it'd be interesting, I think, for people to hear a little bit about your work. So I kind of, the impetus to this is we're doing this whole uh, magazine uh, issue of of, uh, QT Voices on this Thinking Trans, Trans Thinking Conference. 
Uh, and so, of course, you were the keynote to this conference because uh, your work is so uh, innovative and cutting edge, uh, and, and you're, you're sort of, you know, one of these next big things right now. And so I think people would love to hear uh, about what your, what your book is about, if you want to say a few words about it. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I'm not sure, actually, that I am one of, one of the next big things. I think that one thing that I've learned about my book in uh, having the time and space to return to it this year is that it is actually a book that um, is very attached to and interested in uh, kind of old conflicts between uh, the sort of then emerging fields of trans, queer, and feminist studies. Um, I think that there are a lot of graduate students actually who are doing the real sort of innovation in trans studies. But loosely, I will say that um, the book that I've been working on is a book that begins with the observation that one of the ways in which trans studies was able to establish itself in the academy or to begin to establish itself in the academy as a kind of viable academic discourse um, was through the sort of disavowal of any relationship between transness and what we might call madness, right? Um, over and over again, the founding scholars in trans studies um, would have to insist, uh, I'm not sick or I'm not crazy or this or that. Um, and while on the one hand, those sort of founding disavowals have made it possible, I think, for trans studies to exist in the ways that it does now, um, it's also true that they rely on kind of profoundly ableist sort of understandings about um, what is uh, viable knowledge, what are the um, habits of thought and modes of feeling that might produce um, something like justice or might produce something like knowledge. Um, so the project of the book is really to ask um, what do uh, the forms of feeling and habits of thought that I call trans maladjustment, um, what, what do those forms of feeling help us think about um, the kind of persistent conflicts between trans feminist and queer thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. And I, what I'm thinking about as you're talking is uh, this piece that you wrote in Paris Review over the summer, um, right after George Floyd is murdered by police. And of course, it's not just George Floyd who's Murder at that time, we have Breonna Taylor and we have Ahmaud Arbery, and we also have someone named Tony McDade, who I think some of us in the queer community, trans community, might know about, but um, received nowhere near the attention. Um, and uh, so I think um, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit about what you have to say, because of course, McDade his life is at the center of this uh, inability to slash between transness and madness. Would you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about why you wrote about Tony McDade and if that kind of fits into the bigger project you're talking about? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, that I, I, that was an essay that sort of came out all at once. And I think that the reason it I, I could write it sort of all at once was precisely because I had already been thinking about um, the questions of uh, transness and madness and questions of like what allows us to understand trans people as um, as on the one hand really trans but on the other hand as um, sort of viable political or ethical subjects um, and so I, I became very sort of preoccupied um, with Tony McDade and the way that he was sort of circulating in um, queer and trans discourse because it, it was a kind of circulation that required us to understand him as um, kind of like a flat 
like like a flat object, right? Somebody who was killed by the police because of um, his transmasculinity, his black transmasculinity specifically. Um, but what one learned when one um, tried to get as close to his life as I could, right, through um, this sort of long Facebook um, video that he sort of left as, um, I don't know, it sort of seemed like his like last his last speech act, right, um, and also through a kind of proliferation of news articles that was written about him. Um, one kind of comes to understand that he was not a kind of good liberal victim, right? Mm -hmm. he, he was somebody for whom the sheer sort of um, brutality, right, of living as a Black person, a poor, like a, specifically a poor Black person who had been in and out of various kinds of carceral institutions, um, whose life and cognition was like deeply shaped by uh, uh, what he called, quote unquote, living suicidal, um, who's um, kind of, yeah, it, I, I think that like all of the ways in which he seemed like a kind of incoherent subject um, did not, was not a story um, that would make sense to the ways that we have learned to sort of mourn, um, mourn and make martyrs of black people when they are killed by the police. Um, yeah, and so I think that I was just interested in thinking about um, if we take Tony McDade's own account of his life for granted. Um, what kind of story can we tell about transness then and about um, mourning uh, uh, mm -hmm. victims of police violence then? I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I, I think that this is always a challenge for our movements is this question of, of who is grievable, uh, who is mournable, who do we rally around? And I think we've seen uh, a lot of this over the last year, in part because of Tony McDade, but just sort of the proliferation of, of police and vigilante violence against black folks that's been in the media and the ways that this question around what does black lives matter mean in relation to black trans life. Mm -hmm. And you see these different discourses, right? Where of course some people, I mean, if you think of black lives matter as a thing, it's like, comes from a queer place, maybe not trans, but a queer place for sure. Uh, and then you yet have a lot of folks, cis folks in particular, who have a, a sort of, you know, wait your turn mentality. Um, and so I think uh, what you're pointing to is, is the ways in which this is a question that's live, uh, specifically around the question of trans life, but more broadly for our movements about who, who is the center. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it's that, it's all of that. And it's also, I think that one of the difficulties of thinking about this with relation to transness in particular, because of the history of um, the medicalization of gender nonconformity, right? Transness cannot get away from uh, discourses of mental illness in the same way that queerness, I think, has been able to since the removal of homosexuality from the DSM, right? Yeah. Um, transness is uh, still um, sort of uh, in expert discourses and also in various kinds of transphobic discourses thought of as a kind of mental illness. And so because of that, um, in order for people to appear to be sort of legitimately trans, I think that there is often the sense that one has to strip, right, anything that might be um, a kind of hint of incoherence or madness from uh, the way that they narrate themselves. And this was something that was impossible to do um, with Tony McDade. 
even though I think a lot of people tried. Um, and also I should say that one of the, like some of the most um, inspiring to me uh, ways that people attempted to um, think about how they might redress or how we might redress um, the sort of violence that marks the life of someone like Tony McDade was um, um, a black trans activist project, I think based in New York called the Okra Project, um, did this sort of massive fundraising campaign um, to um, raise money to uh, provide sort of mental health care, right, for black trans people and um, ideally sort of by other black people. And so this was a way where um, in like, like accounting for the full context of uh, Tony McDade's life and death led people to think, what are the ways that we might prevent um, this kind of thing in the future or address um, the kinds of violence that McDade was up against in one way is by um, not disavowing, right, the entanglements of transness and mental illness, but um, really thinking about um, uh, providing forms of care that Black trans people often aren't able to access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And I think that I loved reading about that in your work as well. And it's really in line with so many of the the bigger turn to, to mutual aid that we've seen this year uh, as people are thinking about how do we provide for ourselves, for our own communities, um, in ways that are mutually supportive and beneficial. And I think that that fits right into that. And it also makes me think a little bit about something else uh, that you talk about in this essay, uh, which is, by the way, just such a beautiful essay. And we'll put it in the show notes so that everyone else can read it as well. Um, but you're you're talking about uh, being, you, you're in uh, Northampton right now, sort of one of these white lesbian enclaves in the United States. Probably the um, white lesbian enclave in the United States. <laughs> I think you're right, it is the. Um, and you're there, you're there for work, you, you, you live there now, and you're wondering what the protests are gonna be like in your community uh, after George, George Floyd. And you have this uh, interesting phrase that you talk about uh, as you're somewhat pleasantly surprised uh, by the the pleasure you find in what you describe as the the motley we, mm-hmm. uh, and I wonder if you could talk about that moment, talk about that choice of phrasing, and what that meant to be uh, protesting in community at that time. Yeah, Northampton is a is a is a town where there are often protests. Um, everybody here is very sort of politically engaged, although in sometimes in ways that are bewildering to me. But um, usually usually I think that um, protests that happen in Northampton are very orderly. Um, and their orderliness is a kind of reflection of um, what is ultimately a kind of liberal politics. Um, but what was so kind of enlivening to me about um, the, at least especially the first um, Black Lives Matter protest here after George Floyd's murder was that it was a protest that was really um, led by uh, youth of color. Um, it was really not interested in orderliness. Um, it was really uh, not interested in the ways in which uh, even the kind of good liberal uh, government of Northampton might um, make 
sort of managing concessions, but but it was it was the first time I felt something like um, an abolitionist feeling uh, in Northampton. Although I haven't been here for very long, so I'm sure that that feeling erupts um, more often than I know. Um, and so, and so what, what I meant by the kind of feeling of the Motley We was that it was one of those moments where um, everybody's, not everybody's, but everybody that I understand to be part of my we, right? Um, black and brown people, queer people, trans people, um, everybody's interests for a moment seemed to be aligned. And we were all collectively interested in the question of how might the world actually be different? Not how might it be managed differently, not um, what kinds of concessions might we get, but rather like what, what, would, it, what would it mean for the world actually to be ordered differently? Um, and it's a feeling, it's a feeling that one sometimes gets that kind of motley abolitionist feeling, um, but yeah. Yeah. not that often. Sadly, not that often, um, but I think to, to transition a little bit to your, 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 your poetry, because I think one of the things that your poetry does is it helps to conjure that kind of utopian feeling, that possibility of just thinking through things in a, in a way that otherwise you wouldn't. And that makes me want to ask you, what do you think is the role of the poet in political moments like <laughs> the one we're living in? Um... Yeah, I, I think that I, I have multiple conflicting answers to that question. Um, I think that what was interesting about being a poet in that moment or in this moment is that um, it was a moment where everybody was clamoring for poetry. Um, it, it was a moment where, um, yeah, I don't. I, I think it's been a long time since I've gotten that many sort of requests for readings, essays, poets, poems, etc. Um, but it was also a moment where everybody wanted the poets to be doing it for free. Um, so, <laughs> right. right. So, so, so I think one uh, one of the sort of bizarre things about um, the relationship between poetry and politics is that everybody seems to know um, that in order for in order for these moments of the kind of motley we to cohere, right? One needs art, one needs music, one needs poetry, one needs um, ways of uh, moving people, right? Literally. But on the other hand, um, uh, it's not exactly clear that we, it's not, it's not exactly clear um, how we will pay the people who do the moving. Um, but that, that's one thing. The other thing is just that um, I think that as much as I want to believe in the kind of utopian possibility of art, um, as much as I want to believe that and actually think that um, encoded in much of the art that I love um, is the sort of utopian feeling, um, is the kind of tiny, tiny, tiny gateways to um feeling that the world might be otherwise. I, I also think, and this was an argument that I was sort of circling around in the talk that I gave for the Transvelocity Conference, is that one of the things that poetry is good for, for me, and I think for the world, is that it, 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 it's, a, it's a sort of place to put frustration and conflict and, um, and um, dreams that cannot be realized, right, in the material world. And 
in being a place to sort of store that stuff, right? To store desire, to store feeling. Um, it, it, it makes it possible, I think, to do other work, whether that be teaching or um, political activism or writing, writing one's academic book or whatever it is. Mm, this is really fascinating to me. So sorry, I was taking notes as you were speaking. So I was like, this is so poignant. Poetry is a place to, to, uh, to put frustration and, and conflict, that, that which makes other uh, work possible. Um, and I think, uh, I think this makes sense in my experience. It resonates so much. But I can't help but return that to your earlier point about uh, who's going to pay people to do the work that is the work of poetry, that is the work of art, that is the work of music. Um, and this disconnect that I think has long existed, a, kind of a tradition of, of Marxist thought, thinking about the, the place the utopian is found is often in art uh, because those um, longings can't be actualized in the material world. And so I think your, your point about not being able to pay those who are helping us to feel and see those visions uh, really speaks to that point about this disconnect between the world we want and the world we actually exist in. Yeah. And what's the answer to you? I mean, you're in a different situation, right? You're a, you're a tenure track assistant professor. So you have a, a salary and, and stuff and, you know, it's maybe neither here nor there for you to do a couple of free events, mm-hmm. but what, what's the, what should the politic be with that? You know, I mean, I think that my, I think that with everything, I think that the answer is it's complicated, right? I think that, <laughs> um, I think that on the one hand, right, on the utopian horizon, uh, art should be one of the pursuits that people put um, put their life and labor towards, right? Um, but I think that in the here and now, the fact of the matter is that um, the entanglement of money with poetry in particular um, often means uh, that people become in small ways um, and in big ways less free, right, to do the kinds of work that might contain that utopian horizon in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, like, no, nobody thinks that like the patronage system was good for making radical art, um, but, um, and yet, right, that this, this continues to sort of be the only funding, well, one of the only funding structures for art that we have is that, um, institutions with a lot of money dole it out to people that they uh, think are doing work that is in some way in line with their vision. And so, and, and being somebody who is not very good at thinking about political economy, I don't, I don't know the answer to how it should be otherwise, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it is, it's an interesting question to me, just more broadly, even uh with this publication, this this QT Voices and, and this podcast, some of the decisions that we've made around uh, who we compensate financially for their participation and who we don't and how we're trying to be make ethical choices with that, I think is it's always a, a very live question. Uh, and deeply embedded in this moment, I hope uh, people aren't listening to this as a diversion because it's actually deeply embedded into how the movement moves mm-hmm. um, in relation to, to art. So I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about the concept of of trans sentiment uh, that you talk about, and 
I think that your work just embodies and, and what can what you call trans sentiment teach everyone right now, regardless of their gender identity? Um, well, I mean, okay, so I think that I, I often mean many things by this. I think that in this Tony McDade essay, um, I was specifically interested in uh, what I think of as um, like a kind of trans earnestness, um, which is an, an earnestness, right, is is not not exactly a feeling, but it is um, a kind of uh, a way of thinking that that, that seems to be entirely about um, like profound seriousness and often seriousness about things that perhaps ought not be taken so seriously according to uh, other people around you. Um, but also there is in a kind of noun, uh, yeah, in, in one of the sort of more obsolete definitions of earnestness, um, a kind of sense that an earnest, right, is something that um, uh, is once like as like a financial term about about a kind of return on a future a future return on an investment, but also is about um, a kind of portent, right? Like an earnest is something that shows you the shape of the future to come. Um, and so I was interested in thinking about um, why it is that uh, transness so often is represented as a kind of earnestness, um, as a kind of um, like intense seriousness about things that other people think are not so serious. Um, and one of the sort of ways that I try to think that through in the essay is that um, to be trans, to live as trans in the world requires um, taking very seriously um, the idea that one's uh, feelings, right? That one's feelings, but also things like haircuts, like names, like pronouns, right? That these things are very, very important and that taking them seriously um, is the only way to sort of actualize a trans life. Um, and I mean, I think that that sort of intensity, that earnestness is something that um, might be very useful for everyone, right? <laughs> um, the idea that um, it is good actually, or that it might be good actually to take very seriously um, the ways in which one's body sort of like almost despite itself uh, would like to manifest differently or would like the world to be differently around to be different around it so that um uh one can move with a little bit more ease um yeah so so i don't know i mean i i, I think that i think that this kind of hoping right which is a hoping that is not a kind of uh which is a kind of hoping that is like deeply tethered to the present and deeply tethered to what feels dysphoric in the present, but uh, wants very much to alleviate it and takes very seriously the idea that it can be alleviated. It seems like um, one of the kind of basic preconditions for something like movements, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think that is a lovely way to wrap up our conversation. And so uh, Cameron Awkward-Rich, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. This is Audio QT.